Well, good morning again, Chillicothe Bible Church. I am happy to be with you and opening God's Word with you again this morning. Uh, if you're the kind of person who wants to know where we're going to be so you can turn there in your Bible ahead of time, let me tell you that we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And as you make your way there, let me also tell you why this text is important. It is because it tells us how to become the kind of Christian that we all want to grow up to be. Uh, if you are like me, over the course of your Christian life, you have known a number of people, a number of believers who are more mature in their walk with Christ than what you are, and you inwardly wonder how they become the sorts of people that they have become. Uh, when I was a student at Taylor University over in Indiana, I remember listening to Jay Kessler and Elizabeth Elliott and Alistair Begg and others. And uh, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, listening to uh, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and John Hanna and Howard Hendricks and others there, and just being in awe of these uh, men and women and also, over the course of my life, I look back and fondly remember many other pastors and teachers and godly men and women who inspired me and who, who produced in me the thought that when I grow up in the Lord, I want to be like them. I want to know Jesus like they do. I want to live for Jesus in the same way that they do. And if you've ever had that thought also, then this text that we're looking at today is for you. It gives you some of the secrets, if you will, of becoming a godly man, a godly, mature man or woman. And before we get into that text, I want to prepare our hearts with you. I want to go before the Lord and ask for His grace to help us because honestly, if your life is like mine, you've tried to do things on your own, by your own effort, and it, it doesn't work. You don't have within you the kind of spiritual resources in your own heart to produce this kind of life uh, by your own strength. And so we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. So I invite you to pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, um, if uh, my life has taught me anything, it's that I am, as the song says, still a man in need of a Savior. I am still a sinner, still struggle with my flesh, still uh, do not live in the way that I would want all the time. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your thoughts higher than my thoughts, and your ways my ways. And Father, I want to grow up into maturity, into the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ. And Father, I know that these who are participating with us in worship this morning want to do the same thing. Father, in order to do that, we are going to need, not just want, but need, your Holy Spirit, to fill us and indwell us and empower us and enable us to do these things. 
because none of us are equal to the things we see in Your Word. Father, we thank You that Your Word promises to give us grace to enable what the flesh cannot produce. And Father, help us to receive Your Word into our hearts. Uh, Father, help us by Your Holy Spirit to be transformed that we might attain to the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ. And Father, we pray for our worship service this morning again that all that we do here, all that we do in this place and in our homes and in places around the country, that it would all be received from our hands, Father, as an acceptable sacrifice before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to read you the text. Uh, it is uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And this is what the Word of God says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, if we look at these verses, there are two key aspects of the Christian life uh, that we see in them. One is positive, telling us what to pursue, and the other is negative, telling us what to avoid. Now, we're going to get into more detail in, in these things as the book goes on. We're going to look at putting off the old manner of life and putting on the new self uh, in Christ, and we're going to see all, all of that. But there are in these verses a snapshot of these things. And verses 6 and 7 give us an encouraging uh, word about growing deeper roots of maturity in Christ. And if you look at them with me, what Paul says is this, that as you received Christ as Lord, so walk in Him. And the point Paul is making is this, that over time, it can be tempting. Over time, as you uh, have come to Christ and you've known the Lord for a while, it can be tempting to wander off of the straight path and forget that Jesus is both our Messiah and Savior, which is what Christ means, and also our Lord, meaning that He rules over us, that He has authority 
over us and that we are bound as His servants, as His followers, and as the children of God to fully obey Him and submit to Him and to follow His leading for our lives. And when we came to faith in Christ, we happily received Him as Savior and committed ourselves to a life of obedience to Him as our Lord. But if we want to advance in spiritual maturity, then we have to persevere down that same road. We have to continue to walk in Him just as we did in the beginning. That's what Paul is telling us. Verse 6. Verse 7 fills, fills that in. It tells us what that means. It includes three important aspects. It talks, first of all, about being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Now, I don't know about your house, but Karen and I are both working from home in these uh, days of lockdown and quarantine and physical distancing from one another. And so we have been looking for any kind of excuse to find something outside of the four walls that we keep looking at to do outside. And so after a long hiatus, we have decided that we're going to plant everything we can find. So we've got flowers, we've got blueberry bushes, we've got, uh, we've got cucumbers, we've got peppers, both sweet and hot, and tomatoes, and zucchini, and butterfly bushes, and all kinds of stuff is growing in the yard. And the reason for that is because, like I say, first of all, we need something to do. But second of all, we also are looking forward to the harvest of all of these fruitful things. We're hoping that if all goes well, that by the end of the summer, we will be hip deep in vegetables. That we will be subsisting on bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers and caprese salad and cucumbers and onions and grilled zucchini and zucchini bread. We'll also be freezing peppers and tomatoes for chili this winter, and we hope to have abundant fruit to enjoy. And that's because the quantity and the quality of the fruit that you get is to a, a great degree determined by how well-rooted it becomes. And they need to grow from being potted seedlings, which is what we buy, these little potted plants. You know, you can buy them right now for about a buck and a half each, right? And, and you stick these in the ground, and you're hoping that it's going to become not a little potted seedling, seedling but a tomato plant about the highest as this podium, and be loaded with grape tomatoes or beefsteak or whatever it is that you've planted. But in order to get that, you're going to have to grow some roots. And roots that extend out beyond the seedling stage into deep and wide in the ground. I learned this week that, that trees are from two to five times out from the trunk of the tree, their height. So if you have a 90-foot tree, you could have roots going out 450 feet from the trunk, which is amazing. 
We used to have 100-foot-tall sycamores in our, uh, in our front yard, and they were huge, and they were also hollow and dangerous, so we took them down. But just we, we got to doing some estimating and thinking, my goodness, that means that they could have roots that went under our street, over past the neighbor's house, and over into the cornfield on the other side of the road a block from our house. There could be roots all the way over there. And a tree that size has to spread out. It has to get roots. It has to get well rooted. And it does that so it can be built up to a great height. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. There is a, a need for us to get rooted and built up and established in the faith. And there's both a knowledge component to that and an experience component to that. So we need to learn more about Jesus through His Word, and we also need to live with Jesus in our daily experience. And we need to seek Him in prayer and dedicate each part of our days and lives to Him and submit to His will as also revealed in His Word. And over time, what happens to us is that we grow deeper and wider roots and we grow more and more established. And by the way, as we do so, our life becomes more fruitful in the kingdom of God. And the next phrase in that sentence there in verse 7, just as you were taught, gives us a little more, that this is a communal enterprise. You know, I know that, that we are not physically together in the way that we want to be, but nevertheless, there is a communal aspect of the, ch of the church and its life that is undeniable. And that you cannot sustain this all on your own. The, the phrase, just as you were taught, implies that there is someone who is doing the teaching. And in my life and in your life, it is not just one person. It's not just me as the preaching pastor of this church who is doing the teaching. There are Sunday school teachers, and there are small group leaders, and there are... Uh, uh, there are MOPS leaders and Bible study leaders. And then on top of that, there are all kinds of just interactions with one another that convey to us various aspects of the faith. I have learned a ton from people in our church who do not have formal positions of teaching authority in it, both men and women, that we learn from and we learn how to live out the faith together. I learned also this week that it, those giant redwood trees that are out there in California, I don't know if you know this, but this was fascinating to me, that their roots are all actually interconnected to one another. And their root systems nourish each other as they grow together. They share nutrients, they share root systems, and they all grow up together as they feed one another. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor for what Paul has in mind here. That there's a communal aspect to growth and to life and that we teach one another how to live it. How to live it out. We need each other to help each other to grow up. And then there's this final encouragement. 
abounding in thankfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but I have struggled a little bit to be grateful for my situation. This is not the way I like to live my life. My life includes a lot more personal interaction with a lot more people. But one of the things that Paul is reminding us here with this text is that gratitude is the foundational attitude of the Christian life. It's foundational. Do you greet each day both grateful and shocked that God would love and save the likes of you? If you don't, you should. Because I know you. And by the way, you know me as well. And that God would save the likes of us ought to make us both shocked and grateful that God in fact does. We are the recipients, men and women, of eternal blessings that we did not earn and cannot and do not deserve. And that should make us the most grateful and thankful people in the world. And it should encourage us to persevere in pursuing Christ, in submitting to Christ as Lord. And as we continue to pursue Christ, we do so with an attitude of gratitude and grow more and more deeply rooted. And as we do that, our lives are more and more built up toward maturity and we become ever more firmly established in the faith as we were taught. That's what these verses are all about. That that as we continue to pursue Christ, as we continue to be grateful for what He has done for us, as we continue to walk in the faith as we were taught and to encourage each other, we become more and more firmly established and rooted and built up. We start to grow into those the kind of people that we looked at as younger Christians and admired and thought, I want to be like them. We start to become like them. And more importantly, we start to become like Jesus. And then what we see in verses 8-15 through is that Christ is superior over every false philosophy and over every demonic power. First two verses are the positive side. The things that we're to pursue if we want to grow up spiritually. But just as rabbits and gophers can invade your garden and eat your veggies, there are also spiritual predators that you need to protect yourself from. Uh, Verses 8-15 through tell us about some of them warning us to stay away from the deceptive and the demonic false teachers and their teaching. And as you look at the text with me, what you need to know is a little bit of background context. The book of Colossians was written for many reasons, but its primary purpose is to correct false teaching. It is most likely being propagated by a man or a a group of men who present themselves as teachers, as some sort of quasi-Christian spiritual guides, and they claimed to have, see if this sounds familiar, superior spiritual insight. And they would tell people these very patronizing lies that, well, 
Christ is good and He's a good place to start, but you need to move on from beyond Him. You need to get into our rituals and our taboos and our practices and you will tap into a deeper spiritual realm. And what they're doing in reality is mixing, as you read the Scripture here in Colossians, you'll see hints of what they're up to. Uh, and it is a mixture of Christianity and various forms of paganism and also various kinds of Jewish folk religion. And they're encouraging people to receive this secret knowledge. But in doing so, what they're doing is devaluing Jesus Christ. And they're replacing reliance on Him and Him alone as the source and the power of spiritual life for rituals and taboos and practices that they claim give you spiritual power even over the demonic realm. And in these verses, Paul is warning the Colossians and he's warning us not to be deceived by this sort of thing. Christ is both fully sufficient for our salvation and He gives us freely all the things that we need to grow to spiritual maturity. All of the things that we need to grow. If you look at the text with me again, in verse 8, we get the warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Uh, the word philosophy here is not limited to what you think of when you maybe took a philosophy class as an undergrad and you... You learned about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Leibniz and all these guys, right? Uh, Nietzsche and all this kind of stuff, right? It includes that, but it's not limited to that. Uh, in, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, in, in the context in which this is written, the word philosophy refers to uh, not just those kind of ideas, but all kinds of other ideas about how life works and how it's supposed to be lived some of which may be religious and some of which may not, uh, but it includes a whole manner of life. It includes all human attempts to answer without reference to the God of the Scriptures, the big questions of life and your place in it. Trying to explain why, where you came from and why life matters and what what living a good life actually even is, etc. And trying to do that apart from Christ will always, you can write this down, and you should, trying to live a good life apart from Christ will always lead you astray. It will always lead you astray. Accepting answers to what the good and what the good life even are without reference to Jesus Christ will make you captive to deception. It'll either be based on human tradition, as Paul says here, or it will be based on what Paul also identifies as what he calls the elemental spirits of the world. 
That's an ancient Greek technical term for what are elsewhere in the Bible called demons. The elemental spirits. In the ancient Greek world, they had spirits that were believed to inhabit all the things in the world. So you had gods that were over the rivers, over the trees, over the open fields, over the crops. Uh, gods of the grave, gods of the hearth, gods of the home, gods of the over this grain and that grain, and this cycle of the calendar and all these things, right? And they were referred to as the elemental spirits, the spirits that control the elements of the world. Paul identifies them as demons. And he says, either if you step away from Christ, you're either embracing merely human tradition or you're embracing an ideology and a theology and an idea that is propagated by the demonic realm. And so he says, don't let anyone take you captive by some other idea other than Jesus. Anything disconnected from Jesus might seem like wisdom, but it either has nothing higher behind it than human reasoning, or it has a demon behind it. And either one will lead you far afield from actual spiritual life. And it will make you a captive rather than set you free. Remember, uh, I said last week, Satan is not that creative. He doesn't have that many lies. But one of his favorite ones is the same one he told Eve in the garden. You will be like God. And he still tells it. He tells it to people over and over that you don't need Jesus. You don't need uh, to listen to your Bible. You don't need to pay attention to what mama or grandma taught you. You don't need to listen to these things. What you need is for God to get with the times. You need to embrace the latest and greatest new ideas. And if you do, and I know this from experience, both mine and other people's, that if you do, you will have been promised freedom, but you will become a captive. And it will not set your life free. And so Paul says, be careful that no one takes you captive. And verses 9 to 15 point out that Christ and the life that he offers is not only sufficient for people, it is superior in every way to anything else you can hold it up next to. There's a whole list of things in these verses that we should be grateful for. Look at these things. In verse 9, it says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ, in other words, really is God in the flesh. And if that's true, then what that means is, is that we can trust Him that He accurately reveals everything that we have that we need to know about God. And more than that, it tells us that we are filled in Him. 
meaning that God's very presence, because Christ comes to indwell us, that the very presence of God lives in us and also rules over all things. That the only God that there is dwells fully in Jesus, and Jesus dwells fully in you. You got anything better than that? I don't. But Paul stacks some more benefits and blessings that come from that spiritual life that we receive through faith in Jesus on here. He says, um, he, he says in verse 10 that he is the head of all rule and authority. That everything in the universe, everything else in the universe fits underneath this person who indwells you and I. In verse 11, we see that we were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, what does that mean? What's he talking about there? Um, he's, he's saying, he's talking not about the physical reality that may have happened to you as a man as you see it in Judaism. When he says, not with hands, what he means is that there's a circumcision of your soul that takes place when you put your faith in Jesus. It is the cutting away, not of skin from your body, but of the sin nature from your soul. What Paul calls the flesh is his term for your sinful nature, who you are apart from Jesus. That Jesus circumcises you. He cuts away the old part of who you were and makes you new. Gives you a new heart that is sensitive all of a sudden to the things of the Spirit who indwells you. How does that happen? According to verse 12, what we symbolize in water by our when we baptize people really happens to us in a spiritual sense. And what the symbol depicts is not just a symbol, it's a reality that has happened within our own souls. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God powerfully worked so that we become spiritual participants in Jesus' death. So that when Jesus died, all of our sin, all of the fleshy, if you will, parts of us died with Him and was buried and put to death. All of it was buried. That's what baptism is all about. That's why we, that's why we go under fully under the water. Because every part of us was submerged in the grave with Christ. Our old person, the old us, who we were before Christ has been buried. And then, according to verse 13, look at this. This is amazing. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. In other words, just like at baptism, you go under the water and then you come out. 
why do we not hold people under till they quit bubbling? Well, because God has would mess up the symbol for one thing. I can think of some other reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons is this. Because it symbolizes what in fact has happened. That our old us was buried. And that our new life has come. We have been raised to new life. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. We are cleansed in who we are as people in union with Christ. Our spiritually dead souls were brought to life. Our sins were canceled out. And we are forgiven in union with Christ. And these are amazing truths and realities that we enjoy. Verse 14 goes further explaining how it is, how is it that a good and a just God can forgive us of all of our sin in the death of Christ. How does that even happen? It says, verse 14, that He canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside by nailing it to the cross. You know, a lot of people have asked me the question over the years, well, well, why Jesus' death? What's the big deal about Jesus' death? How, why, how come God can't just you know, say, well, you're all forgiven. No need for all that death stuff. We just forget that and just set that aside. No big thing. Why can't God do that? Because God's justice demands the death penalty for sin. That's why. And so for God to forgive us without meeting the demands of justice would violate who He is as God. And He cannot remain just and do that. On top of that, He cannot remain a loving God and do that. Because it is not loving to allow evil to persist against those you love. And sin is not only Something that we do is also something done to us. Amen? And so God has to be both just and loving at the same time. And what He does is the most amazing thing that has ever happened or will ever happen. He decides that in His love and justice, He will meet the demands of both love and justice in His own flesh that He will lay down His life to pay the penalty for sin. Not the sin that He did because He wasn't guilty, but the sin that we did. And it canceled it all out. All of the legal demands of the law were met in Jesus Christ. And He set them aside, the Scripture says, nailing them to the cross. I love the line in the hymn, that says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well. Amen. Why is it well? Because Jesus in His 
being nailed to the cross, nailed with His own body, our sin to it, and put our sin to death and set us free. And verse 15 goes further. It says that He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who are the rulers and authorities? They are the members of the demonic realm. You see... From our earliest history as human beings, according to the Scriptures, Satan was at work in our fall. In, in helping to tempt our first parents and lead them into sin. And then in the ruination of all of God's creation that resulted from that, they have continued to be active. And they felt that they had triumphed over God and His creation because they had despoiled every good thing that He made. And then, when Jesus Himself came as the Redeemer and Rescuer, they successfully managed to put Him to death. And they thought, here is our moment of victory. But what the Scripture reveals to us is no. There was their moment of defeat. Because there was the moment when sin was paid and the power of Jesus' resurrection life that flowed out of His death and burial began to reverse the curse and to bring men and women to new life and began to restore all of the things which had been spoiled by sin and Satan and death. And so Jesus' shout from the cross, it is finished, was not a cry of defeat, but of victory. And it says here that He put them to open shame triumphing over them in Him. That, that what they thought was their moment of greatest victory was their moment of ultimate defeat. And Jesus says, you see all these, all these things that some people are telling you to worship? All these spiritual beings and people representing them as spiritual guides and so forth. Jesus is victorious over all of these spirits. Jesus is greater than everything else out there. That's the point. Jesus is the only one who forgives sin. He's the only one who rules all things. He is the only one who has ever been victorious over the demonic realm. He is the only one who cancels out sin. He is the only one who promises to indwell every person who puts their faith in Him and does so with all of the fullness of deity. And He's done it. And so let no one lead you astray. from pure devotion to Christ, from growing up to maturity in Him. Let me close our time this morning by just encouraging all of us. 
to continue to grow deep roots of maturity in Christ. If you want to pursue some other kind of spirituality than this, you need to know that not only is it based on either human and therefore false philosophy or it comes from demons. And besides that, you need to know that the faith in Christ that you were taught once upon a time is not only true, but it is superior to every other competitor. I know that's not a politically correct idea. But you know what? Some things are just true. Even if we as people are uncomfortable with the idea of true and false, God is not. And what He is telling us here in the Scripture is this, that some things are just true. And Jesus is the ultimate truth to which everything else in creation doesn't even rate comparison. And Christianity is true. And if you give your life to it, if you give your life to following Christ, you will not be disappointed. Jesus has shamed the demons with His victory over them. Jesus has forgiven all of our sin. Jesus has granted us who put their faith in Him eternal life. He has paid the penalty of sin so that both His justice and His love can be vindicated at the same time. He dwells inside us. He raises us from both spiritual and physical death. He is the fullness of God incarnate. He cuts off our old sinful nature to give us a new one. And He makes us like Him. What do you got better than that? Let me tell you this, you're going to look a long time to find anything better than that. And you aren't going to find it. Jesus Christ is, as Jesus' own parable taught, the treasure hidden in the field. And He is worth everything. If you found a hundred billion dollars in gold coins hidden in a field, you would mortgage your house, sell your car, borrow whatever money you could to buy that field so you could have that treasure. And Jesus is worth so much more than that. Because life with Him is not just for this life. It's for eternity. An eternity of redemption and joy and forgiveness, and peace, and His indwelling presence. So, given that, let's all continue to grow roots and to be built up in Him, to be strengthened in the faith just like we were taught, and continue to follow Him and to overflow each day with thankfulness over all that He has done. Keep following Christ to maturity. Keep striving each day to live for Him and to love Him and to obey Him who loves you and who has offered His life to give you all these things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for these great truths. We thank You that Jesus stands completely alone among all the teachers of the world, 
that he alone is the Son of God who brings redemption. Father, help us to live out our lives in gratitude, in shock and amazement and joy, that you would save the likes of us in this way. Father, help us to grow to maturity and help us not to be deceived by anything false and deceptive. Anything that's a mere human idea or some notion propagated by the demonic realm. Help us instead to hold on to Christ and to grow up in Him. To get deep-rooted and fruitful as a result. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.